Chapter 11 Anchors Amos and I once rigged a wheel of fortune. It was marked from zero to one hundred, but we had it built so that it would stop only at ten or sixty-five. We recruited students of the University of Oregon as participants in our experiment. One of us would stand in front of a small group, spin the wheel, and ask them to write down the number on which the wheel stopped, which of course was either ten or sixty-five. We then asked them two questions. Is the percentage of African nations among UN members larger or smaller than the number you just wrote? What is your best guess of the percentage of African nations in the UN? The spin of a wheel of fortune, even one that is not rigged, cannot possibly yield useful information about anything, and the participants in our experiment should simply have ignored it. But they did not ignore it. The average estimates of those who saw 10 and 65 were 25% and 45% respectively. The phenomenon we were studying is so common and so important in the everyday world that you should know its name. It is an anchoring effect. It occurs when people consider a particular value for an unknown quantity before estimating that quantity. What happens is one of the most reliable and robust results of experimental psychology. The estimates stay close to the number that people considered, hence the image of an anchor. If you are asked whether Gandhi was more than 114 years old when he died, you will end up with a much higher estimate at his age of death than if you would if the anchoring question referred to death at 35. If you consider how much you should pay for a house, you will be influenced by the asking price. The same house will appear more valuable if its listing price is high than if it is low, even if you are determined to resist the influence of this number, and so on. The list of anchoring effects is endless. Any number that you are asked to consider as a possible solution to an estimation problem will induce an anchoring effect. We were not the first to observe the effects of anchors, but our experiment was the first demonstration of its absurdity. People's judgments were influenced by an obviously uninformative number. There was no way to describe the anchoring effect of a wheel of fortune as reasonable. Amos and I published the experiment in our science paper, and it is one of the best known of the findings we reported there. There was only one trouble. Amos and I did not fully agree on the psychology of the anchoring effect. He supported one interpretation, I liked another, and we never found a way to settle the argument. The problem was finally solved decades later by the efforts of numerous investigators. It is now clear that Amos and I were both right. Two different mechanisms produce anchoring effects, one for each system. There is a form of anchoring that occurs in a deliberate process of adjustment, an operation of system two. And there is anchoring that occurs by a priming effect, an automatic manifestation of system one. Anchoring as Adjustment
Amos liked the idea of an adjust-and-anchor heuristic as a strategy for estimating uncertain quantities. Start from an anchoring number, assess whether it is too high or too low, and gradually adjust your estimate by mentally moving from the anchor. The adjustment typically ends prematurely because people stop when they are no longer certain that they should move farther. Decades after our disagreement, and years after Amos's death, convincing evidence of such a process was offered independently by two psychologists who had worked closely with Amos early in their careers, Eldar Shafir and Tom Gilovich, together with their own students, Amos's intellectual grandchildren. To get the idea... Take a sheet of paper and draw a two-and-a-half-inch line going up, starting at the bottom of the page, without a ruler. Now take another sheet and start at the top and draw a line going down until it is two-and-a-half inches from the bottom. Compare the lines. There is a good chance that your first estimate of two-and-a-half inches was shorter than the second. The reason is that you do not know exactly what such a line looks like. There is a range of uncertainty. You stop near the bottom of the region of uncertainty when you start from the bottom of the page and near the top of the region when you start from the top. Robin LaBeouf and Shafir found many examples of that mechanism in daily experience. Insufficient adjustment neatly explains why you are likely to drive too fast when you come off the highway onto city streets especially if you are talking with someone as you drive. Insufficient adjustment is also a source of tension between exasperated parents and teenagers who enjoy loud music in their room. LeBuff and Shafir note that a well-intentioned child who turns down exceptionally loud music to meet a parent's demand that is played at a reasonable volume may fail to adjust sufficiently from a high anchor and may feel that genuine attempts at compromise are being overlooked. The driver and the child both deliberately adjust down, and both fail to adjust enough. Now consider these questions. When did George Washington become president? What is the boiling temperature of water at the top of Mount Everest? The first thing that happens when you consider each of these questions is that an anchor comes to mind, and you know both that it is wrong and the direction of the correct answer. You know immediately that George Washington became president after 1776, and you also know that the boiling temperature of water at the top of Mount Everest is lower than 100 degrees Celsius. You have to adjust in the appropriate direction by finding arguments to move away from the anchor. As in the case of the lines, you are likely to stop when you are no longer sure you should go farther, at the near edge of the region of uncertainty. Nick Epley and Tom Gilovich found evidence that adjustment is a deliberate attempt to find reasons to move away from the anchor. People who are instructed to shake their head when they hear the anchor, as if they rejected it, move farther from the anchor, and people who nod their head show enhanced anchoring. Epley and Gilovich also confirmed that adjustment is an effortful operation.
People adjust less, stay closer to the anchor when their mental resources are depleted, either because their memory is loaded with digits or because they are slightly drunk. Insufficient adjustment is a failure of a weak or lazy system, too. So we now know that Amos was right for at least some cases of anchoring, which involve a deliberate system to adjustment in a specified direction from an anchor. Anchoring as Priming Effect When Amos and I debated anchoring, I agreed that adjustment sometimes occurs, but I was uneasy. Adjustment is a deliberate and conscious activity, but in most cases of anchoring, there is no corresponding subjective experience. Consider these two questions. Was Gandhi more or less than 144 years old when he died? How old was Gandhi when he died? Did you produce your estimate by adjusting down from 144? Probably not. But the absurdly high number still affected your estimate. My hunch was that anchoring is a case of suggestion. This is the word we use when someone causes us to see, hear, or feel something by merely bringing it to mind. For example, the question, Do you now feel a slight numbness in your left leg? Always prompts quite a few people to report that their left leg does indeed feel a little strange. Amos was more conservative than I was about hunches, and he correctly pointed out that appealing to suggestion did not help us understand anchoring because we did not know how to explain suggestion. I had to agree that he was right, but I never became enthusiastic about the idea of insufficient adjustment as the sole cause of anchoring effects. We conducted many inconclusive experiments in an effort to understand anchoring, but we failed and eventually gave up the idea of writing more about it. The puzzle that defeated us is now solved, because the concept of suggestion is no longer obscure. Suggestion is a priming effect, which selectively evokes compatible evidence. You did not believe for a moment that Gandhi lived for 144 years, but your associative machinery surely generated an impression of a very ancient person. System 1 understands sentences by trying to make them true, and the selective activation of compatible thoughts produces a family of systematic errors that makes us gullible and prone to believe too strongly whatever we believe. We can now see why Amos and I did not realize that there were two types of anchoring. The research techniques and theoretical ideas we needed did not yet exist. They were developed, much later, by other people. A process that resembles suggestion is indeed at work in many situations. System 1 tries its best to construct a world in which the anchor is the true number. This is one of the manifestations of associative coherence that I described in the first part of the book. The German psychologists Thomas Musweiler and Fritz Strack offered the most compelling demonstrations of the role of associative coherence in anchoring. In one experiment, they asked an anchoring question about temperature. Is the annual mean temperature in Germany higher or lower than 20 degrees Celsius? 
68 degrees Fahrenheit. Or is the annual mean temperature in Germany higher or lower than 5 degrees Celsius, 40 degrees Fahrenheit? All participants were then briefly shown words that they were asked to identify. The researchers found that 68 degrees Fahrenheit made it easier to recognize summer words, like sun and beach, and 40 degrees Fahrenheit facilitated winter words, like frost and ski. The selective activation of compatible memories explains anchoring. The high and the low numbers activate different sets of ideas in memory. The estimates of annual temperature draw on these biased samples of ideas and are therefore biased as well. In another elegant study in the same vein, participants were asked about the average price of German cars. A high anchor selectively primed the names of luxury brands, Mercedes, Audi, whereas the low anchor primed brands associated with mass-market cars, Volkswagen. We saw earlier that any prime will tend to evoke information that is compatible with it. Suggestion and anchoring are both explained by the same automatic operation of System 1. Although I did not know how to prove it at the time, my hunch about the link between anchoring and suggestion turned out to be correct. The Anchoring Index Many psychological phenomena can be demonstrated experimentally, but few can actually be measured. The effect of anchors is an exception. Anchoring can be measured, and it is an impressively large effect. Some visitors at the San Francisco Exploratorium were asked the following two questions. Is the height of the tallest redwood more or less than 1,200 feet? What is your best guess about the height of the tallest redwood? The high anchor in this experiment was 1,200 feet. For other participants, the first question referred to a low anchor of 180 feet. The difference between the two anchors was 1,020 feet. As expected, the two groups produced very different mean estimates, 844 and 282 feet. The difference between them was 562 feet. The anchoring index is simply the ratio of the two differences, 562 to 1,020, expressed as a percentage, 55%. The anchoring measure would be 100% for people who slavishly adopt the anchor as an estimate, and zero for people who are able to ignore the anchor altogether. The value of 55% that was observed in this example is typical. Similar values have been observed in numerous other problems. The anchoring effect is not a laboratory curiosity. It can be just as strong in the real world. In an experiment conducted some years ago, real estate agents were given an opportunity to assess the value of a house that was actually on the market. They visited the house and studied a comprehensive booklet of information that included an asking price. Half the agents saw an asking price that was substantially higher than the listed price of the house. 
the other half saw an asking price that was substantially lower. Each agent gave her opinion about a reasonable buying price for the house and the lowest price at which she would agree to sell the house if she owned it. The agents were then asked about the factors that had affected their judgment. Remarkably, the asking price was not one of these factors. The agents took pride in their ability to ignore it. They insisted that the listing price had no effect on their responses, but they were wrong. The anchoring effect was 41%. Indeed, the professionals were almost as susceptible to anchoring effects as business school students with no real estate experience, whose anchoring index was 48%. The only difference between the two groups was that the students conceded that they were influenced by the anchor, while the professionals denied that influence. Powerful anchoring effects are found in decisions that people make about money, such as when they choose how much to contribute to a cause. To demonstrate this effect, we told participants in the Exploratorium study about the environmental damage caused by oil tankers in the Pacific Ocean and asked about their willingness to make an annual contribution to save 50,000 offshore Pacific Coast seabirds from small offshore oil spills until ways are found to prevent spills or require tanker owners to pay for the operation. This question requires intensity matching. The respondents are asked, in effect, to find the dollar amount of a contribution that matches the intensity of their feelings about the plight of the seabirds. Some of the visitors were first asked an anchoring question such as, would you be willing to pay $5? Before the point-blank question of how much they would contribute. When no anchor was mentioned, the visitors at the Exploratorium, generally an environmentally sensitive crowd, said they were willing to pay $64 on average. When the anchoring amount was only $5, contributions averaged $20. When the anchor was a rather extravagant $400, the willingness to pay rose to an average of $143. The difference between the high anchor and low anchor groups was $123. The anchoring effect was above 30%, indicating that increasing the initial request by $100 brought a return of $30 in average willingness to pay. Similar or even larger anchoring effects have been obtained in numerous studies of estimates and of willingness to pay. For example, French residents of the heavily polluted Marseille region were asked what increase in living costs they would accept if they could live in a less polluted region. The anchoring effect was over 50% in that study. Anchoring effects are easily observed in online trading where the same item is often offered at different buy-now prices. The estimate in fine art auctions is also an anchor that influences the first bid. There are situations in which anchoring appears reasonable. After all, it is not surprising that people who are asked difficult questions clutch at straws, and the anchor is a plausible straw. 
If you know next to nothing about the trees of California and are asked whether a redwood can be taller than 1,200 feet, you might infer that this number is not too far from the truth. Somebody who knows the true height thought up that question, so the anchor may be a valuable hint. However, a key finding of anchoring research is that anchors that are obviously random can be just as effective as potentially informative anchors. When we used a wheel of fortune to anchor estimates of the proportion of African nations in the UN, the anchoring index was 44%, well within the range of effects observed with anchors that could plausibly be taken as hints. Anchoring effects of similar size have been observed in experiments in which the last few digits of the respondent's social security number was used as the anchor. For example, for estimating the number of physicians in their city. The conclusion is clear. Anchors do not have their effects because people believe they are informative. The power of random anchors has been demonstrated in some unsettling ways. German judges with an average of more than 15 years of experience on the bench first read a description of a woman who had been caught shoplifting, then rolled a pair of dice that were loaded so that every roll resulted in either a three or a nine. As soon as the dice came to a stop, the judges were asked whether they would sentence the woman to a term in prison greater or lesser in months than the number showing on the dice. Finally, the judges were instructed to specify the exact prison sentence they would give to the shoplifter. On average, those who had rolled a nine said they would sentence her to eight months. Those who rolled a three said they would sentence her to five months. The anchoring effect was 50%. Uses and Abuses of Anchors by now you should be convinced that anchoring effects, sometimes due to priming, sometimes to insufficient adjustment, are everywhere. The psychological mechanisms that produce anchoring make us far more suggestible than most of us would want to be. And, of course, there are quite a few people who are willing and able to exploit our gullibility. Anchoring effects explain why, for example, Arbitrary rationing is an effective marketing ploy. A few years ago, supermarket shoppers in Sioux City, Iowa, encountered a sales promotion for Campbell's Soup at about 10% off the regular price. On some days, a sign on the shelf said, Limit of 12 per person. On other days, the sign said, No limit per person. Shoppers purchased an average of seven cans when the limit was in force, twice as many as they bought when the limit was removed. Anchoring is not the sole explanation. Rationing also implies that the goods are flying off the shelves, and shoppers should feel some urgency about stocking up. But we also know that the mention of 12 cans as a possible purchase would produce anchoring even if the number were produced by a roulette wheel. We see the same strategy at work in the negotiation over the price of a home when the seller makes the first move by setting the list price. As in many other games, moving first is an advantage in single-issue negotiations. 
For example, when price is the only issue to be settled between a buyer and the seller. As you may have experienced when negotiating for the first time in a bazaar, the initial anchor has a powerful effect. My advice to students when I taught negotiations was that if you think the other side has made an outrageous proposal, you should not come back with an equally outrageous counteroffer, creating a gap that will be difficult to bridge in further negotiations. Instead, you should make a scene, storm out or threaten to do so, and make it clear, to yourself as well as to the other side, that you will not continue the negotiation with that number on the table. The psychologists Adam Galinsky and Thomas Musweiler proposed more subtle ways to resist the anchoring effect in negotiations. They instructed negotiators to focus their attention and search their memory for arguments against the anchor. The instruction to activate System 2 was successful. For example, the anchoring effect is reduced or eliminated when the second mover focuses his attention on the minimal offer that the opponent would accept, or on the costs to the opponent of failing to reach an agreement. In general, a strategy of deliberately thinking the opposite may be a good defense against anchoring effects, because it negates the biased recruitment of thoughts that produces these effects. Finally, try your hand at working out the effect of anchoring on a problem of public policy, the size of damages in personal injury cases. These awards are sometimes very large. Businesses that are frequent targets of such lawsuits, such as hospitals and chemical companies, have lobbied to set a cap on the awards. Before you read this chapter, you might have thought that capping awards is certainly good for potential defendants, but now you should not be so sure. Consider the effect of capping awards at $1 million. This rule would eliminate all larger awards, but the anchor would also pull up the size of many awards that would otherwise be much smaller. It would almost certainly benefit serious offenders and large firms much more than small ones. Anchoring and the Two Systems the effects of random anchors have much to tell us about the relationship between System 1 and System 2. Anchoring effects have always been studied in tasks of judgment and choice that are ultimately completed by System 2. However, System 2 works on data that is retrieved from memory in an automatic and involuntary operation of System 1. System 2 is therefore susceptible to the biasing influence of anchors that make some information easier to retrieve. Furthermore, System 2 has no control over the effect and no knowledge of it. The participants who have been exposed to random or absurd anchors, such as Gandhi's death at age 144, confidently deny that this obviously useless information could have influenced their estimate. And they are wrong. We saw in the discussion of the law of small numbers that a message, unless it is immediately rejected as a lie, will have the same effect on the associative system regardless of its reliability. The gist of the message is the story, which is based on whatever information is available, 
even if the quantity of the information is slight and its quality is poor. What you see is all there is. When you read a story about the heroic rescue of a wounded mountain climber, its effect on your associative memory is much the same if it is a news report or the synopsis of a film, anchoring results from this associative activation. Whether the story is true or believable matters little, if at all. The powerful effect of random anchors is an extreme case of this phenomenon because a random anchor obviously provides no information at all. Earlier, I discussed the bewildering variety of priming effects, in which your thoughts and behavior may be influenced by stimuli to which you pay no attention at all, and even by stimuli of which you are completely unaware. The main moral of priming research is that our thoughts and our behavior are influenced much more than we know or want by the environment of the moment. Many people find the priming results unbelievable because they do not correspond to subjective experience. Many others find the results upsetting because they threaten the subjective sense of agency and autonomy. If the content of a screensaver on an irrelevant computer can affect your willingness to help strangers without your being aware of it, how free are you? Anchoring effects are threatening in a similar way. You are always aware of the anchor and even pay attention to it, but you do not know how it guides and constrains your thinking because you cannot imagine how you would have thought if the anchor had been different or absent. However, you should assume that any number that is on the table has had an anchoring effect on you, and if the stakes are high, you should mobilize yourself, your system too, to combat the effect. Speaking of anchors, the firm we want to acquire sent us their business plan with the revenue they expect. We shouldn't let that number influence our thinking. Set it aside. Plans are best-case scenarios. Let's avoid anchoring on plans when we forecast actual outcomes. Thinking about ways the plan could go wrong is one way to do it. Our aim in the negotiation is to get them anchored on this number. Let's make it clear that if that is their proposal, the negotiations are over. We do not want to start there. The defendant's lawyers put in a frivolous reference in which they mentioned a ridiculously low amount of damages, and they got the judge anchored on it. Chapter 12 The Science of Availability Amos and I had our most productive year in 1971-72, which we spent in Eugene, Oregon. We were the guests of the Oregon Research Institute, which housed several future stars of all fields in which we worked, judgment, decision-making, and intuitive prediction. Our main host was Paul Slovic, who had been Amos's classmate at Ann Arbor and remained a lifelong friend. Paul was on his way to becoming the leading psychologist among scholars of risk, a position he had held for decades, collecting many honors along the way. 
Paul and his wife, Roz, introduced us to life in Eugene, and soon we were doing what people in Eugene do, jogging, barbecuing, and taking children to basketball games. We also worked very hard, running dozens of experiments and writing our articles on judgment heuristics. At night, I wrote attention and effort. It was a busy year. One of our projects was the study of what we called the availability heuristic. We thought of that heuristic when we asked ourselves what people actually do when they wish to estimate the frequency of a category, such as people who divorce after the age of 60, or dangerous plants. The answer was straightforward. Instances of the class will be retrieved from memory, and if retrieval is easy and fluent, the category will be judged to be large. We defined the availability heuristic as the process of judging frequency by the ease with which instances come to mind. The statement seemed clear when we formulated it, but the concept of availability has been refined since then. The two-system approach had not yet been developed when we studied availability, and we did not attempt to determine whether this heuristic is a deliberate problem-solving strategy or an automatic operation. We now know that both systems are involved. A question we considered early was how many instances must be retrieved to get an impression of the ease with which they come to mind. We now know the answer. None. For example, think of the number of words that can be constructed from the two sets of letters here. X-U-Z-O-N-L-C-J-M T-A-P-C-E-R-H-O-B you knew almost immediately, without generating any instances, that one set offers far more possibilities than the other, probably by a factor of ten or more. Similarly, you do not need to retrieve specific news stories to have a good idea of the relative frequency with which different countries have appeared in the news during the past year. Belgium, China, France, Congo, Nicaragua, Romania. The availability heuristic, like other heuristics of judgment, substitutes one question for another. You wish to estimate the size of a category or the frequency of an event, but you report an impression of the ease with which instances come to mind. Substitution of questions inevitably produces systematic errors. You can discover how the heuristic leads to biases by following a simple procedure. List factors other than frequency that make it easy to come up with instances. Each factor in your list will be a potential source of bias. Here are some examples. A salient event that attracts your attention will be easily retrieved from memory. Divorces among Hollywood celebrities and sex scandals among politicians attract much attention, and instances will come easily to mind. You are therefore likely to exaggerate the frequency of both Hollywood divorces and political sex scandals. A dramatic event temporarily increases the availability of its category. 
A plane crash that attracts media coverage will temporarily alter your feelings about the safety of flying. Accidents are on your mind for a while after you see a car burning at the side of the road, and the world is for a while a more dangerous place. Personal experiences, pictures, and vivid examples are more available than incidents that happened to others, or mere words, or statistics. A judicial error that affects you will undermine your faith in the justice system more than a similar incident you read about in a newspaper. Resisting this large collection of potential availability biases is possible, but tiresome. You must make the effort to reconsider your impressions and intuitions by asking such questions as, is our belief that thefts by teenagers are a major problem due to a few recent instances in our neighborhood? Or, could it be that I feel no need to get a flu shot because none of my acquaintances got the flu last year? Maintaining one's vigilance against biases is a chore, but the chance to avoid a costly mistake is sometimes worth the effort. One of the best-known studies of availability suggests that awareness of your own biases can contribute to peace in marriages and probably in other joint projects. In a famous study, spouses were asked, How large was your personal contribution to keeping the place tidy, in percentages? They also answered similar questions about taking out the garbage initiating social engagements, etc. Would the self-estimated contributions add up to 100% or more or less? As expected, the self-assessed contributions added up to more than 100%. The explanation is a simple availability bias. Both spouses remember their own individual efforts and contributions much more clearly than those of the other and the difference in availability leads to a difference in judged frequency. The bias is not necessarily self-serving. Spouses also overestimated their contribution to causing quarrels, although to a smaller extent than their contributions to more desirable outcomes. The same bias contributes to the common observation that many members of a collaborative team feel they have done more than their share, and also feel that the others are not adequately grateful for their individual contributions. I am generally not optimistic about the potential for personal control of biases, but this is an exception. The opportunity for successful debiasing exists because the circumstances in which issues of credit allocation come up are easy to identify, the more so because tensions often arise when several people at once feel that their efforts are not adequately recognized. The mere observation that there is usually more than 100% credit to go around is sometimes sufficient to defuse the situation. In any event, it is a good thing for every individual to remember. You will occasionally do more than your share, but it is useful to know that you are likely to have that feeling even when each member of the team feels the same way. The Psychology of Availability A major advance in the understanding of the availability heuristic 
occurred in the early 1990s when a group of German psychologists led by Norbert Schwartz raised an intriguing question. How will people's impressions of the frequency of a category be affected by a requirement to list a specified number of instances? Imagine yourself a subject in that experiment. First, list six instances in which you behaved assertively. Next, evaluate how assertive you are. Imagine that you had been asked for 12 instances of assertive behavior, a number most people find difficult. Would your view of your own assertiveness be different? Schwartz and his colleagues observed that the task of listing instances may enhance the judgments of the trait by two different routes. The number of instances retrieved. The ease with which they come to mind. The request to list twelve instances pits the two determinants against each other. On the one hand, you have just retrieved an impressive number of cases in which you were assertive. On the other hand, while the first three or four instances of your own assertiveness probably came easily to you, you almost certainly struggled to come up with the last few to complete a set of twelve. Fluency was low. Which will count more? The amount retrieved, or the ease and fluency of the retrieval. The contest yielded a clear-cut winner. People who had just listed twelve instances rated themselves as less assertive than people who had listed only six. Furthermore, participants who had been asked to list twelve cases in which they had not behaved assertively ended up thinking of themselves as quite assertive. If you cannot easily come up with instances of meek behavior, you are likely to conclude that you are not meek at all. Self-ratings were dominated by the ease with which examples had come to mind. The experience of fluent retrieval of instances trumped the number retrieved. An even more direct demonstration of the role of fluency was offered by other psychologists in the same group. All the participants in their experiment listed six instances of assertive or non-assertive behavior while maintaining a specified facial expression. Smilers were instructed to contract the zygomaticus muscle, which produces a light smile. Frowners were required to furrow their brow. As you already know, frowning normally accompanies cognitive strain, and the effect is symmetric. When people are instructed to frown while doing a task, they actually try harder and experience greater cognitive strain. The researchers anticipated that the frowners would have more difficulty retrieving examples of assertive behavior and would therefore rate themselves as relatively lacking in assertiveness. And so it was. Psychologists enjoyed experiments that yield paradoxical results, and they have applied Schwartz's discovery with gusto. For example, people believe that they use their bicycles less often after recalling many rather than few instances, are less confident in a choice when they are asked to produce more arguments to support it. 
are less confident that an event was avoidable after listing more ways it could have been avoided. Are less impressed by a car after listing many of its advantages. A professor at UCLA found an ingenious way to exploit the availability bias. He asked different groups of students to list ways to improve the course, and he varied the required number of improvements. As expected, the students who listed more ways to improve the class rated it higher. Perhaps the most interesting finding of this paradoxical research is that the paradox is not always found. People sometimes go by content rather than by ease of retrieval. The proof that you truly understand a pattern of behavior is that you know how to reverse it. Schwartz and his colleagues took on this challenge of discovering the conditions under which this reversal would take place. The ease with which instances of assertiveness come to the subject's mind changes during the task. The first few instances are easy, but retrieval soon becomes much harder. Of course, the subject also expects fluency to drop gradually, but the drop of fluency between six and twelve instances appears to be steeper than the participant expected. The results suggest that the participants make an inference. If I am having so much more trouble than expected coming up with instances of my assertiveness, then I can't be very assertive. Note that this inference rests on a surprise, fluency being worse than expected. The availability heuristic that the subjects apply is better described as an unexplained unavailability heuristic. Schwartz and his colleagues reasoned that they could disrupt the heuristic by providing the subjects with an explanation for the fluency of retrieval that they experienced. They told the participants they would hear background music while recalling instances and that the music would affect performance in the memory task. Some subjects were told that the music would help. Others were told to expect diminished fluency. As predicted, participants whose experience of fluency was explained did not use it as a heuristic. The subjects who were told that music would make retrieval more difficult rated themselves as equally assertive when they retrieved twelve instances as when they retrieved six. Other cover stories have been used with the same result. Judgments are no longer influenced by ease of retrieval when the experience of fluency is given a spurious explanation by the presence of curves or straight text boxes, by the background color of the screen, or by other irrelevant factors that the experimenters dreamed up. As I have described it, the process that leads to judgment by availability appears to involve a complex chain of reasoning. The subjects have an experience of diminishing fluency as they produce instances. They evidently have expectations about the rate at which fluency decreases, and those expectations are wrong. The difficulty of coming up with new instances increases more rapidly than they expect. It is the unexpectedly low fluency that causes people who were asked for twelve instances to describe themselves as unassertive. When the surprise is eliminated, 
Low fluency no longer influences the judgment. The process appears to consist of a sophisticated set of inferences. Is the automatic system one capable of it? The answer is that, in fact, no complex reasoning is needed. Among the basic features of System 1 is its ability to set expectations and to be surprised when these expectations are violated. The system also retrieves possible causes of a surprise, usually by finding a possible cause among recent surprises. Furthermore, System 2 can reset the expectations of System 1 on the fly, so that an event that would normally be surprising is now almost normal. Suppose you are told that the three-year-old boy who lives next door frequently wears a top hat in his stroller. You will be far less surprised when you actually see him with his top hat than you would have been without the warning. In Schwartz's experiment, the background music has been mentioned as a possible cause of retrieval problems. The difficulty of retrieving twelve instances is no longer a surprise and therefore is less likely to be evoked by the task of judging assertiveness. Schwartz and his colleagues discovered that people who are personally involved in the judgment are more likely to consider the number of instances they retrieve from memory and less likely to go by fluency. They recruited two groups of students for a study of risks to cardiac health. Half the students had a family history of cardiac disease and were expected to take the task more seriously than the others, who had no such history. All were asked to recall either three or eight behaviors in their routine that could affect their cardiac health. Some were asked for risky behaviors, others for protective behaviors. Students with no family history of heart disease were casual about the task and followed the availability heuristic. Students who found it difficult to find eight instances of risky behavior felt themselves relatively safe, and those who struggled to retrieve examples of safe behaviors felt themselves at risk. The students with a family history of heart disease showed the opposite pattern. They felt safer when they retrieved many instances of safe behavior and felt greater danger when they retrieved many instances of risky behavior. They were also more likely to feel that their future behavior would be affected by the experience of evaluating their risk. The conclusion is that the ease with which instances come to mind is a System 1 heuristic, which is replaced by a focus on content when System 2 is more engaged. Multiple lines of evidence converge on the conclusion that people who let themselves be guided by System 1 are more strongly susceptible to availability biases than others who are in a state of higher vigilance. The following are some conditions in which people go with the flow and are affected more strongly by ease of retrieval than by the content they retrieved. When they are engaged in another effortful task at the same time. When they are in a good mood because they just thought of a happy episode in their life. If they score low on a depression scale.
If they are knowledgeable novices on the topic of the task, in contrast to true experts, when they score high on a scale of faith in intuition, if they are, or are made to feel, powerful. I find the last finding particularly intriguing. The authors introduce their article with a famous quote. I don't spend a lot of time taking polls around the world to tell me what I think is the right way to act. I've just got to know how I feel. George W. Bush, November 2002 They go on to show that reliance on intuition is only in part a personality trait. Merely reminding people of a time when they had power increases their apparent trust in their own intuition. Speaking of Availability Because of the coincidence of two planes crashing last month, she now prefers to take the train. That's silly. The risk hasn't really changed. It is an availability bias. He underestimates the risks of indoor pollution because there are few media stories on them. That's an availability effect. He should look at the statistics. She has been watching too many spy movies recently, so she's seeing conspiracies everywhere. The CEO has had several successes in a row, so failure doesn't come easily to her mind. The availability bias is making her overconfident. Chapter 13 Availability, Emotion, and Risk Students of risk were quick to see that the idea of availability was relevant to their concerns. Even before our work was published, the economist, Howard Kunruther, who was then in the early stages of a career that he has devoted to the study of risk and insurance, noticed that availability effects help explain the pattern of insurance purchase and protective action after disasters. Victims and near-victims are very concerned after a disaster. After each significant earthquake, Californians are for a while diligent in purchasing insurance and adopting measures of protection and mitigation. They tie down their boiler to reduce quake damage, seal their basement doors against floods, and maintain emergency supplies in good order. However, the memories of the disaster dim over time, and so do worry and diligence. The dynamics of memory help explain the recurrent cycles of disaster, concern, and growing complacency that are familiar to students of large-scale emergencies. Kunruther also observed that protective actions, whether by individuals or governments, are usually designed to be adequate to the worst disaster actually experienced. As long ago as Pharaonic Egypt, societies have tracked the high watermark of rivers that periodically flood and have always prepared accordingly, apparently assuming that floods will not rise higher than the existing high water mark. Images of a worse disaster do not come easily to mind. Availability and Affect the most influential studies of availability biases were carried out by our friends in Eugene, where Paul Slovic 
and his longtime collaborator, Sarah Lichtenstein, were joined by our former student, Baruch Fischoff. They carried out groundbreaking research on public perceptions of risks, including a survey that has become the standard example of an availability bias. They asked participants in their survey to consider pairs of causes of death, diabetes and asthma, or stroke and accidents. For each pair, the subjects indicated the more frequent cause and estimated the ratio of the two frequencies. The judgments were compared to health statistics of the time. Here's a sample of their findings. Strokes cause almost twice as many deaths as all accidents combined, but 80% of respondents judged accidental death to be more likely. Tornadoes were seen as more frequent killers than asthma, although the latter caused 20 times more deaths. Death by lightning was judged less likely than death from botulism, even though it is 52 times more frequent. Death by disease is 18 times as likely as accidental death, but the two were judged about equally likely. Death by accidents was judged to be more than 300 times more likely than death by diabetes, but the true ratio is 1 to 4. The lesson is clear. Estimates of causes of death are warped by media coverage. The coverage is itself biased toward novelty and poignancy. The media do not just shape what the public is interested in, but also are shaped by it. Editors cannot ignore the public's demand that certain topics and viewpoints receive extensive coverage. Unusual events, such as botulism, attract disproportionate attention and are consequently perceived as less unusual than they really are. The world in our heads is not a precise replica of reality. Our expectations about the frequency of events are distorted by the prevalence and emotional intensity of the messages to which we are exposed. The estimates of causes of death are an almost direct representation of the activation of ideas in associative memory, and are a good example of substitution. But Slovic and his colleagues were led to a deeper insight. They saw that the ease with which ideas of various risks come to mind and the emotional reactions to these risks are inextricably linked. Frightening thoughts and images occur to us with particular ease, and thoughts of danger that are fluent and vivid exacerbate fear. As mentioned earlier, Slovic eventually developed the notion of an affect heuristic, in which people make judgments and decisions by consulting their emotions. Do I like it? Do I hate it? How strongly do I feel about it? In many domains of life, Slovic said, People form opinions and make choices that directly express their feelings and their basic tendency to approach or avoid, often without knowing that they are doing so. The affect heuristic is an instance of substitution, in which the answer to an easy question, How do I feel about it? serves as an answer to a much harder question, What do I think about it? Slovic and his colleagues related their views to the work of the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio, who had proposed that people's emotional evaluations of outcomes, 
and the bodily states and the approach and avoidance tendencies associated with them all play a central role in guiding decision-making. Damasio and his colleagues have observed that people who do not display the appropriate emotions before they decide, sometimes because of brain damage, also have an impaired ability to make good decisions. An inability to be guided by a healthy fear of bad consequences is a disastrous flaw. In a compelling demonstration of the workings of the affect heuristic, Slovic's research team surveyed opinions about various technologies, including water fluoridation, chemical plants, food preservatives, and cars, and asked their respondents to list both the benefits and the risks of each technology. They observed an implausibly high negative correlation between two estimates that their respondents made, the level of benefit and the level of risk that they attributed to the technologies. When people were favorably disposed toward a technology, they rated it as offering large benefits and imposing little risk. When they disliked the technology, they could think only of its disadvantages and few advantages came to mind. Because the technologies lined up neatly from good to bad, no painful trade-offs needed to be faced. Estimates of risk and benefit corresponded even more closely when people rated risks and benefits under time pressure. Remarkably, members of the British Toxicology Society responded similarly. They found little benefit in substances or technologies that they thought risky, and vice versa. Consistent affect is a central element of what I have called associative coherence. The best part of the experiment came next. After completing the initial survey, the respondents read brief passages with arguments in favor of various technologies. Some were given arguments that focused on the numerous benefits of a technology, others arguments that stressed the low risks. These messages were effective in changing the emotional appeal of the technologies. The striking finding was that people who had received a message extolling the benefits of a technology also changed their beliefs about its risks. Although they had received no relevant evidence, the technology they now liked more than before was also perceived as less risky. Similarly, Respondents who were told only that the risks of a technology were mild developed a more favorable view of its benefits. The implication is clear. As the psychologist Jonathan Haidt said in another context, the emotional tail wags the rational dog. The affect heuristic simplifies our lives by creating a world that is much tidier than reality. Good technologies have few costs in the imaginary world we inhabit, bad technologies have no benefits, and all decisions are easy. In the real world, of course, we often face painful trade-offs between benefits and costs. The Public and the Experts Paul Slovic probably knows more about the peculiarities of human judgment of risk than any other individual. His work offers a picture of Mr. and Ms. Citizen that is far from flattering, guided by emotion rather than by reason, easily swayed by trivial details, 
and inadequately sensitive to differences between low and negligibly low probabilities. Slovic has also studied experts who are clearly superior in dealing with numbers and amounts. Experts show many of the same biases as the rest of us in attenuated form, but often their judgments and preferences about risks diverge from those of other people. Differences between experts and the public are explained in part by biases in lay judgments, but Slovic draws attention to situations in which the differences reflect a genuine conflict of values. He points out that experts often measure risks by the number of lives or life years lost, while the public draws finer distinctions, for example between good deaths and bad deaths or between random accidental fatalities and deaths that occur in the course of voluntary activities, such as skiing. These legitimate distinctions are often ignored in statistics that merely count cases. Slovic argues from such observations that the public has a richer conception of risks than the experts do. Consequently, he strongly resists the view that the experts should rule and that their opinions should be accepted without question when they conflict with the opinions and wishes of other citizens. When experts and the public disagree on their priorities, he says, each side must respect the insights and intelligence of the other. In his desire to wrest sole control of risk policy from experts, Slovik has challenged the foundation of their expertise, the idea that risk is objective. Risk does not exist out there, independent of our minds and culture waiting to be measured. Human beings have invented the concept of risk to help them understand and cope with the dangers and uncertainties of life. Although these dangers are real, there is no such thing as real risk or objective risk. To illustrate his claim, Slovic lists nine ways of defining the mortality risk associated with the release of a toxic material into the air, ranging from death per million people to death per million dollars of product produced. His point is that the evaluation of the risk depends on the choice of a measure, with the obvious possibility that the choice may have been guided by a preference for one outcome or another. He goes on to conclude that defining risk is thus an exercise in power. You might not have guessed that one can get to such thorny policy issues from experimental studies of the psychology of judgment. However, policy is ultimately about people, what they want, and what is best for them. Every policy question involves assumptions about human nature, in particular about the choices that people may make and the consequences of their choices for themselves and for society. Another scholar and friend whom I greatly admire, Cass Sunstein, disagrees sharply with Slovic's stance on the different views of experts and citizens and defends the role of experts as a bulwark against populist excesses. Sunstein is one of the foremost legal scholars in the United States and shares with other leaders of his profession the attribute of intellectual fearlessness. 
He knows he can master any body of knowledge quickly and thoroughly, and he has mastered many, including both the psychology of judgment and choice and issues of regulation and risk policy. His view is that the existing system of regulation in the United States displays a very poor setting of priorities, which reflects reaction to public pressures more than careful, objective analysis. He starts from the position that risk regulation and government intervention to reduce risks should be guided by rational weighting of costs and benefits, and that the natural units for this analysis are the number of lives saved, or perhaps the number of life years saved, which gives more weight to saving the young, and the dollar cost to the economy. Poor regulation is wasteful of lives and money, both of which can be measured objectively. Sunstein has not been persuaded by Slovic's argument that risk and its measurement is subjective. Many aspects of risk assessment are debatable, but he has faith in the objectivity that may be achieved by science, expertise, and careful deliberation. Sunstein came to believe that biased reactions to risks are an important source of erratic and misplaced priorities in public policy. Lawmakers and regulators may be overly responsive to the irrational concerns of citizens, both because of political sensitivity and because they are prone to the same cognitive biases as other citizens. Sunstein and a collaborator, the jurist Timur Kuran, invented a name for the mechanism through which biases flow into policy, the availability cascade. They comment that in the social context, all heuristics are equal, but availability is more equal than the others. They have in mind an expanded notion of the heuristic in which availability provides a heuristic for judgments other than frequency. In particular, the importance of an idea is often judged by the fluency and emotional charge with which that idea comes to mind. An availability cascade is a self-sustaining chain of events, which may start from media reports of a relatively minor event and lead up to public panic and large-scale government action. On some occasions, a media story about a risk catches the attention of a segment of the public which becomes aroused and worried. This emotional reaction becomes a story in itself, prompting additional coverage in the media, which in turn produces greater concern and involvement. The cycle is sometimes sped along deliberately by availability entrepreneurs, individuals or organizations who work to ensure a continuous flow of worrying news. The danger is increasingly exaggerated as the media compete for attention-grabbing headlines. Scientists and others who try to dampen the increasing fear and revulsion attract little attention, most of it hostile. Anyone who claims that the danger is overstated is suspected of association with a heinous cover-up. The issue becomes politically important because it is on everyone's mind and the response of the political system is guided by the intensity of public sentiment. The availability cascade has now reset priorities. 
other risks, and other ways that resources could be applied for the public good, all have faded into the background. Quran and Sunstein focused on two examples that are still controversial, the Love Canal Affair and the so-called Alar Scare. In Love Canal, buried toxic waste was exposed during a rainy season in 1979, causing contamination of the water well beyond standard limits, as well as a foul smell. The residents of the community were angry and frightened, and one of them, Lois Gibbs, was particularly active in an attempt to sustain interest in the problem. The availability cascade unfolded according to the standard script. At its peak, there were daily stories about Love Canal. Scientists attempting to claim that the dangers were overstated were ignored or shouted down. ABC News aired a program titled The Killing Ground, and empty baby-sized coffins were paraded in front of the legislature. A large number of residents were relocated at government expense, and the control of toxic waste became the major environmental issue of the 1980s. The legislation that mandated the cleanup of toxic sites, called CERCLA, CERCLA, established a superfund and is considered a significant achievement of environmental legislation. It was also expensive, and some have claimed that the same amount of money could have saved many more lives if it had been directed to other priorities. Opinions about what actually happened at Love Canal are still sharply divided, and claims of actual damage to health appear not to have been substantiated. Quran and Sunstein wrote up the Love Canal story almost as a pseudo-event, while on the other side of the debate, environmentalists still speak of the Love Canal disaster. Opinions are also divided on the second example Quran and Sunstein used to illustrate their concept of an availability cascade, the ALAR incident, known to detractors of environmental concerns as the ALAR scare of 1989. ALAR is a chemical that was sprayed on apples to regulate their growth and improve their appearance. The scare began with press stories that the chemical, when consumed in gigantic doses, caused cancerous tumors in rats and mice. The stories understandably frightened the public, and those fears encouraged more media coverage, the basic mechanism of an availability cascade. The topic dominated the news and produced dramatic media events such as the testimony of the actress Meryl Streep before Congress. The Apple industry sustained large losses as apples and Apple products became objects of fear. Quran and Sunstein quote a citizen who called in to ask whether it was safer to pour apple juice down the drain or to take it to a toxic waste dump. The manufacturer withdrew the product, and the FDA banned it. Subsequent research confirmed that the substance might pose a very small risk as a possible carcinogen, but the ALAR incident was certainly an enormous overreaction to a minor problem. The net effect of the incident on public health was probably detrimental because fewer good apples were consumed.
The Alar tale illustrates a basic limitation in the ability of our mind to deal with small risks. We either ignore them altogether or give them far too much weight. Nothing in between. Every parent who has stayed up waiting for a teenage daughter who is late from a party will recognize the feeling. You may know that there is really almost nothing to worry about, but you cannot help images of disaster from coming to mind. As Slovik has argued, the amount of concern is not adequately sensitive to the probability of harm. You are imagining the numerator, the tragic story you saw on the news, and not thinking about the denominator. Sunstein has coined the phrase probability neglect to describe the pattern. The combination of probability neglect with the social mechanisms of availability cascades inevitably leads to gross exaggerations of minor threats, sometimes with important consequences. In today's world, terrorists are the most significant practitioners of the art of inducing availability cascades. With a few horrible exceptions, such as 9-11, the number of casualties from terror attacks is very small relative to other causes of death. Even in countries that have been targets of intensive terror campaigns, such as Israel, the weekly number of casualties almost never came close to the number of traffic deaths. The difference is in the availability of the two risks, the ease and the frequency with which they come to mind. Gruesome images endlessly repeated in the media, cause everyone to be on edge. As I know from experience, it is difficult to reason oneself into a state of complete calm. Terrorism speaks directly to System 1. Where do I come down in the debate between my friends? Availability cascades are real, and they undoubtedly distort priorities in the allocation of public resources, Cass Sunstein would seek mechanisms that insulate decision-makers from public pressures, letting the allocation of resources be determined by impartial experts who have a broad view of all risks and of the resources available to reduce them. Paul Slovic trusts the experts much less, and the public somewhat more than Sunstein does, and he points out that insulating the experts from the emotions of the public produces policies that the public will reject, an impossible situation in a democracy. Both are eminently sensible, and I agree with both. I share Sunstein's discomfort with the influence of irrational fears and availability cascades on public policy in the domain of risk. However, I also share Slovik's belief that widespread fears, even if they are unreasonable, should not be ignored by policymakers. Rational or not, fear is painful and debilitating, and policymakers must endeavor to protect the public from fear, not only from real dangers. Slovik rightly stresses the resistance of the public to the idea of decisions being made by unelected and unaccountable experts. Furthermore, availability cascades may have a long-term benefit by calling attention to classes of risks and by increasing the overall size of the risk reduction budget. 
The Love Canal incident may have caused excessive resources to be allocated to the management of toxic waste, but it also had a more general effect in raising the priority level of environmental concerns. Democracy is inevitably messy, in part because the availability and affect heuristics that guide citizens' beliefs and attitudes are inevitably biased, even if they generally point in the right direction. Psychology should inform the design of risk policies that combine the expert's knowledge with the public's emotions and intuitions. Speaking of Availability Cascades She's raving about an innovation that has large benefits and no costs. I suspect the affect heuristic. This is an availability cascade, a non-event that is inflated by the media and the public until it fills our TV screens and becomes all anyone is talking about. Chapter 14 Tom W.'s Specialty Have a look at a simple puzzle. Tom W. is a graduate student at the main university in your state. Please rank the following nine fields of graduate specialization in order of the likelihood that Tom W. is now a student in each of these fields. Use one for the most likely, nine for the least likely. Business Administration Computer Science Engineering Humanities and Education Law Medicine Library Science Physical and Life Sciences Social Science and Social Work This question is easy, and you knew immediately that the relative size of enrollment in the different fields is the key to a solution. So far as you know, Tom W. was picked at random from the graduate students at the university, like a single marble drawn from an urn. To decide whether a marble is more likely to be red or green, you need to know how many marbles of each color there are in the urn. The proportion of marbles of a particular kind is called a base rate. Similarly, the base rate of humanities and education in this problem is the proportion of students of that field among all the graduate students. In the absence of specific information about Tom W., you will go by the base rates and guess that he is more likely to be enrolled in humanities and education than in computer science or library science, because there are more students overall in humanities and education than in the other two fields. Using base rate information is the obvious move when no other information is provided. Next comes a task that has nothing to do with base rates. The following is a personality sketch of Tom W., written during Tom's senior year in high school by a psychologist on the basis of psychological tests of uncertain validity. Tom W. is of high intelligence, although lacking in true creativity. He has a need for order and clarity and for neat and tidy systems in which every detail finds its appropriate place. His writing is rather dull and mechanical, occasionally enlivened by somewhat corny puns and flashes of imagination of the sci-fi type. 
He has a strong drive for competence. He seems to have little feel and little sympathy for other people, and does not enjoy interacting with others. Self-centered, he nonetheless has a deep moral sense. Now, please take a sheet of paper and rank the nine fields of specialization listed by how similar the description of Tom W. is to the typical graduate student in each of the following fields. Use one for the most likely and nine for the least likely. You will get more out of the chapter if you give the task a quick try. Reading the report on Tom W. is necessary to make your judgments about the various graduate specialties. This question, too, is straightforward. It requires you to retrieve, or perhaps to construct, a stereotype of graduate students in the different fields. When the experiment was first conducted in the early 1970s, the average ordering was as follows. Yours is probably not very different. 1. Computer Science 2. Engineering 3. Business Administration 4. Physical and Life Sciences 5. Library Science 6. Law 7. Medicine 8. Humanities and Education 9. Social Science and Social Work you probably ranked computer science among the best-fitting because of hints of nerdiness, corny puns. In fact, the description of Tom W. was written to fit that stereotype. Another specialty that most people ranked high is engineering, neat and tidy systems. You probably thought that Tom W. is not a good fit with your idea of social science and social work, little feel and little sympathy for other people. Professional stereotypes appear to have changed little in the nearly 40 years since I designed the description of Tom W. The task of ranking the nine careers is complex and certainly requires the discipline and sequential organization of which only System 2 is capable. However, the hints planted in the description, corny puns and others, were intended to activate an association with a stereotype, an automatic activity of System 1. The instructions for this similarity task required a comparison of the description of Tom W. to the stereotypes of the various fields of specialization. For the purposes of that task, the accuracy of the description, whether or not it is a true portrait of Tom W., is irrelevant. So is your knowledge of the base rates of the various fields. The similarity of an individual to the stereotype of a group is unaffected by the size of the group. Indeed, you could compare the description of Tom to an image of graduate students in library science, even if there is no such department at the university. If you examine Tom W. again, you will see that he is a good fit to stereotypes of some small groups of students, computer scientists, librarians, engineers, and a much poorer fit to the largest groups, humanities and education, social science and social work. Indeed, the participants almost always ranked the two largest fields very low. Tom W. was intentionally designed as an anti-base rate character a good fit to small fields, 
and a poor fit to the most populated specialties. Predicting by Representativeness The third task in the sequence was administered to graduate students in psychology, and it is the critical one. Rank the fields of specialization in order of the likelihood that Tom W. is now a graduate student in each of these fields. This third group had all the data at hand, including the base rates of the different fields and the description of Tom W., as well as the statement about the dubious provenance of the description. We anticipated that people would focus entirely on the degree of similarity to the stereotype. We call it representativeness. And completely ignore both the base rates and the doubts about the veracity of the description. They would then rank the small specialty, computer science, as highly probable, because that outcome gets the highest representativeness score. Amos and I worked hard during the year we spent in Eugene, and I sometimes stayed in the office through the night. One of my tasks for such a night was to make up a description that would pit representativeness and base rates against each other. Tom W. was the result of my efforts, and I completed the description in the early morning hours. The first person who showed up to work that morning was our colleague and friend, Robin Dawes, who was both a sophisticated statistician and a skeptic about the validity of intuitive judgment. If anyone would see the relevance of the base rate, it would have to be Robin. I called Robin over gave him the question I had just typed, and asked him to guess Tom W.'s profession. I still remember his sly smile as he said tentatively, Computer scientist? That was a happy moment. Even the mighty had fallen. Of course, Robin immediately recognized his mistake as soon as I mentioned base rate, but he had not spontaneously thought of it. Although he knew as much as anyone about the role of base rates in prediction, he neglected them when presented with the description of an individual's personality. As expected, he substituted a judgment of representativeness for the probability he was asked to assess. Amos and I then collected answers to the same question from 114 graduate students in psychology at three major universities, all of whom had taken several courses in statistics. They did not disappoint us. Their rankings of the nine fields by probability did not differ from ratings by similarity to the stereotype. Substitution was perfect in this case. There was no indication that the participants did anything else but judge representativeness. The question about probability, likelihood, was difficult. But the question about similarity was easier, and it was answered instead. This is a serious mistake, because judgments of similarity and probability are not constrained by the same logical rules. It is entirely acceptable for judgments of similarity to be unaffected by base rates, and also by the possibility that the description was inaccurate, but anyone who ignores base rates and the quality of evidence in probability assessments will certainly make mistakes. The concept, 
The probability that Tom W. studies computer science is not a simple one. Logicians and statisticians disagree about its meaning, and some would say it has no meaning at all. For many experts, it is a measure of subjective degree of belief. There are some events you are sure of, for example, that the sun rose this morning, and others you consider impossible, such as the Pacific Ocean freezing all at once. Then there are many events, such as your next-door neighbor being a computer scientist, to which you assign an intermediate degree of belief, which is your probability of that event. Logicians and statisticians have developed competing definitions of probability, all very precise. For lay people, however, probability, a synonym of likelihood in everyday language, is a vague notion related to uncertainty, propensity, plausibility, and surprise. The vagueness is not particular to this concept, nor is it especially disruptive. We know, more or less, what we mean when we use a word such as democracy or beauty, and the people we are talking to understand, more or less, what we intended to say. In all the years I spent asking questions about the probability of events, no one ever raised a hand to ask me, Sir, what do you mean by probability? as they would have done if I had asked them to assess a strange concept such as globability. Everyone acted as if they knew how to answer my questions, although we all understood that it would be unfair to ask them for an explanation of what the word means. People who are asked to assess probability are not stumped, because they do not try to judge probability as statisticians and philosophers use the word. A question about probability or likelihood activates a mental shotgun, evoking answers to easier questions. Representativeness is a basic assessment, which is part of the routine operations of understanding language. The false statement that Elvis Presley's parents wanted him to be a dentist is mildly funny because the discrepancy between the images of Presley and a dentist is detected automatically. System 1 generates an impression of similarity without intending to do so. The representativeness heuristic is involved when someone says, She will win the election. You can see she is a winner. Or, He won't go far as an academic. Too many tattoos. We rely on representativeness when we judge the potential leadership of a candidate for office by the shape of his chin or the forcefulness of his speeches. Although it is common, prediction by representativeness is not statistically optimal. Michael Lewis's best-selling Moneyball is a story about the inefficiency of this mode of prediction. Professional baseball scouts traditionally forecast the success of possible players in part by their build and look. The hero of Lewis's book is Billy Bean, the manager of the Oakland A's, who made the unpopular decision to overrule his scouts and to select players by the statistics of past performance. The players the A's picked were inexpensive because other teams had rejected them for not looking the part. 
the team soon achieved excellent results at low cost. The Sins of Representativeness Judging probability by representativeness has important virtues. The intuitive impressions that it produces are often, indeed, usually more accurate than chance guesses would be. On most occasions, people who act friendly are, in fact, friendly. A professional athlete who is very tall and thin is much more likely to play basketball than football. People with a Ph.D. are more likely to subscribe to the New York Times than people who ended their education after high school. Young men are more likely than elderly women to drive aggressively. In all these cases, and in many others, there is some truth to the stereotypes that govern judgments of representativeness, and predictions that follow this heuristic may be accurate. In other situations, the stereotypes are false, and the representativeness heuristic will mislead, especially if it causes people to neglect base-rate information that points in another direction. Even when the heuristic has some validity, exclusive reliance on it is associated with grave sins against statistical logic. One sin of representativeness is an excessive willingness to predict the occurrence of unlikely low base rate events. Here is an example. You see a person reading the New York Times on the New York subway. Which of the following is a better bet about the reading stranger? She has a Ph.D. She does not have a college degree. Representativeness would tell you to bet on the Ph.D., but this is not necessarily wise. You should seriously consider the second alternative, because many more non-graduates than PhDs ride in New York subways. And if you must guess whether a woman who is described as a shy poetry lover studies Chinese literature or business administration, you should opt for the latter option. Even if every female student of Chinese literature is shy and loves poetry, it is almost certain that there are more bashful poetry lovers in the much larger population of business students. People without training in statistics are quite capable of using base rates in predictions under some conditions. In the first version of the Tom W. problem, which has no information about him, it is obvious to everyone that the probability of Tom W.'s being in a particular field is simply the base rate frequency of enrollment in that field. However, concern for base rates evidently disappears as soon as Tom W.'s personality is described. Amos and I originally believed, on the basis of our early evidence, that base rate information will always be neglected when information about the specific instance is available. But that conclusion was too strong. Psychologists have conducted many experiments in which base rate information is explicitly provided as part of the problem, and many of the participants are influenced by those base rates, although the information about the individual case is almost always weighted more than mere statistics. Norbert Schwartz and his colleagues showed that instructing people to 
think like statisticians, enhanced the use of base rate information, while the instruction to think like a clinician had the opposite effect. An experiment that was conducted a few years ago with Harvard undergraduates yielded a finding that surprised me. Enhanced activation of System 2 caused a significant improvement of performance in the Tom W. problem. The experiment combined the old problem with a modern variation of cognitive fluency. Half the students were told to puff out their cheeks during the task, while the others were told to frown. Frowning, as we have seen, generally increases the vigilance of System 2 and reduces both overconfidence and the reliance on intuition. The students who puffed out their cheeks, an emotionally neutral expression, replicated the original results. They relied exclusively on representativeness and ignored the base rates. As the authors had predicted, however, the frowners did show some sensitivity to the base rates. This is an instructive finding. When an incorrect intuitive judgment is made, System 1 and System 2 should both be indicted. System 1 suggested the incorrect intuition, and System 2 endorsed it and expressed it in a judgment. However, there are two possible reasons for the failure of System 2, ignorance or laziness. Some people follow their intuition because they do not know that base rate information should be combined with individual information. Others do so because they do not try sufficiently hard. If frowning makes a difference, laziness seems to be the proper explanation of base rate neglect, at least among Harvard undergrads. Their system, too, knows that base rates are relevant, even when they are not explicitly mentioned, but applies that knowledge only when it invests special effort in the task. The second sin of representativeness is insensitivity to the quality of evidence. Recall the rule of System 1. What you see is all there is. In the Tom W. example, what activates your associative machinery is a description of Tom, which may or may not be an accurate portrait. The statement that Tom W. has little feel and little sympathy for people was enough to convince you, and most other readers, that he is very unlikely to be a student of social science or social work. But you were explicitly told that the description should not be trusted. You surely understand in principle that worthless information should not be treated differently from a complete lack of information, but... What you see as all there is makes it very difficult to apply that principle. Unless you decide immediately to reject evidence, for example by determining that you received it from a liar, your System 1 will automatically process the information available as if it were true. There is one thing you can do when you have doubts about the quality of the evidence. Let your judgments of probability stay close to the base rate. Don't expect this exercise of discipline to be easy. It requires a significant effort of self-monitoring and self-control. The correct answer to the Tom W. puzzle 
is that you should stay very close to your prior beliefs, slightly reducing the initially high probabilities of well-populated fields, humanities and education, social science and social work, and slightly raising the low probabilities of rare specialties, library science, computer science. You are not exactly where you would be if you had known nothing at all about Tom W., but the little evidence you have is not trustworthy, so the base rates should dominate your estimates. How to Discipline Intuition Your probability that it will rain tomorrow is your subjective degree of belief, but you should not let yourself automatically believe anything you like. To be useful, your beliefs should be constrained by the logic of probability. So if you believe that there is a 40% chance that it will rain sometime tomorrow, you must also believe that there is a 60% chance it will not rain tomorrow, and you must not believe that there is a 50% chance that it will rain tomorrow morning. And if you believe that there is a 30% chance that candidate X will be elected president, and an 80% chance that he will be re-elected if he wins the first time, then you must believe that the chances that he will be elected twice in a row are 24%. The relative rules for cases such as the Tom W. problem are provided by Bayesian statistics. This influential modern approach to statistics is named after an English minister of the 18th century, the Reverend Thomas Bayes, who is credited with the first major contribution to a large problem, the logic of how people should change their mind in the light of evidence. Bayes' rule specifies how prior beliefs, in the examples of this chapter, base rates, should be combined with the diagnosticity of the evidence, the degree to which it favors the hypothesis over the alternative. For example, if you believe that 3% of graduate students are enrolled in computer science, the base rate, and you also believe that the description of Tom W. is four times more likely for a graduate student in that field than in other fields, then Bayes' rule says you must believe that the probability that Tom W. is a computer scientist is now 11%. If the base rate had been 80%, the new degree of belief would be 94.1%, and so on. The mathematical details are not relevant in this book, there are two ideas to keep in mind about Bayesian reasoning and how we tend to mess it up. The first is that base rates matter, even in the presence of evidence about the case at hand. This is often not intuitively obvious. The second is that intuitive impressions of the diagnosticity of evidence are often exaggerated. The combination of what you see is all there is and associative coherence tends to make us believe in the stories we spin for ourselves. The essential keys to disciplined Bayesian reasoning can be simply summarized. Anchor your judgment of the probability of an outcome on a plausible base rate. Question the diagnosticity of your evidence. Both ideas are straightforward. 
It came as a shock to me when I realized that I was never taught how to implement them, and that even now I find it unnatural to do so. Speaking of representativeness The lawn is well trimmed, the receptionist looks competent, and the furniture is attractive, but this doesn't mean it is a well-managed company. I hope the board does not go by representativeness. This startup looks as if it could not fail, but the base rate of success in the industry is extremely low. How much solid evidence is there? They keep making the same mistake, predicting rare events from weak evidence. When the evidence is weak, one should stick with the base rates. I know this report is absolutely damning, and it may be based on solid evidence, but how sure are we? We must allow for that uncertainty in our thinking. Chapter 15 Linda Less is more. The best-known and most controversial of our experiments involved a fictitious lady called Linda. Amos and I made up the Linda problem to provide conclusive evidence of the role of heuristics in judgment and of their incompatibility with logic. This is how we described Linda. Linda is 31 years old, single, outspoken, and very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. The audiences who heard this description in the 1980s always laughed because they immediately knew that Linda had attended the University of California at Berkeley which was famous at the time for its radical, politically engaged students. In one of our experiments, we presented participants with a list of eight possible scenarios for Linda. Some of the students ranked them by representativeness, others by probability. Have a good look. The problem is similar to that of Tom W., but with a twist. Linda is a teacher in elementary school. Linda works in a bookstore and takes yoga classes. Linda is active in the feminist movement. Linda is a psychiatric social worker. Linda is a member of the League of Women Voters. Linda is a bank teller. Linda is an insurance salesperson. Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. The problem shows its age in several ways. The League of Women Voters is no longer as prominent as it was, and the idea of a feminist movement sounds quaint, a testimonial to the change in the status of women over the last 30 years. Even in the Facebook era, however, it is still easy to guess the almost perfect consensus of judgments. Linda is a very good fit for an active feminist, a fairly good fit for someone who works in a bookstore and takes yoga classes, and a very poor fit for a bank teller or an insurance salesperson. Now focus on the critical items in the list. Does Linda sound more like a bank teller or more like a bank teller who is active in the feminist movement? 
Everyone agrees that Linda fits the idea of a feminist bank teller better than she fits the stereotype of bank tellers. The stereotypical bank teller is not a feminist activist, and adding that detail to the description improves the fit to Linda's personality. The twist comes in the judgments of likelihood, because there is a logical relation between the two scenarios. Think in terms of Venn diagrams. The set of feminist bank tellers is wholly included in the set of bank teller, as every feminist bank teller is a bank teller. Therefore, the probability that Linda is a feminist bank teller must be lower than the probability of her being a bank teller. When you specify a possible event in greater detail, you can only lower its probability. The problem therefore sets up a conflict between the intuition of representativeness and the logic of probability. Our initial experiment was between subjects. Each participant saw a set of seven outcomes that included only one of the critical outcomes, bank teller or feminist bank teller. Some ranked the outcomes by resemblance, others by likelihood. As in the case of Tom W., the average rankings by resemblance and by likelihood were identical. In both judgments, feminist bank teller ranked higher than bank teller. Then we took the experiment further, using a within-subject design. We made up the questionnaire as you saw it, with bank teller in the sixth position in the list, and feminist bank teller as the last item. We were convinced that subjects would notice the relation between the two outcomes and that their rankings would be consistent with logic. Indeed, we were so certain of this that we did not think it worthwhile to conduct a special experiment. My assistant was running another experiment in the lab, and she asked the subjects to complete the new Linda questionnaire while signing out, just before they got paid. About ten questionnaires had accumulated in a tray on my assistant's desk before I casually glanced at them and found that all the subjects had ranked feminist bank teller as more probable than bank teller. I was so surprised that I still retain a flashbulb memory of the gray color of the metal desk and of where everyone was when I made that discovery. I quickly called Amos in great excitement to tell him what we had found. We had pitted logic against representativeness, and the representativeness had won. In the language of this book, we had observed a failure of System 2. Our participants had a fair opportunity to detect the relevance of the logical rule, since both outcomes were included in the same ranking. They did not take advantage of that opportunity. When we extended the experiment we found that 89% of the undergraduates in our sample produced rankings that violated logic. We were convinced that statistically sophisticated respondents would do better, so we administered the same questionnaire to doctoral students in the Decision Science program of the Stanford Graduate School of Business, all of whom had taken several advanced courses in probability, statistics, and decision theory. We were surprised again. 
85% of these respondents also ranked feminist bank teller as more likely than bank teller. In what we later described as increasingly desperate attempts to eliminate the error, we introduced large groups of people to Linda and asked them this simple question. Which alternative is more probable? Linda is a bank teller. Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. This stark version of the problem made Linda famous in some circles, and it earned us years of controversy. About 85% to 90% of undergraduates at several major universities chose the second option, contrary to logic. Remarkably, the sinners against logic seemed to have no shame. When I asked my large undergraduate class in some indignation, do you realize that you have violated an elementary logical rule? Someone in the back row shouted, So what? And a graduate student who made the same error explained herself by saying, I thought you just asked for my opinion. The word fallacy is used in general when people fail to apply a logical rule that is obviously relevant. Amos and I introduced the idea of conjunction fallacy, which people commit when they judge a conjunction of two events, here bank teller and feminist, to be more probable than one of the events, bank teller, in a direct comparison. We found only one group that was relatively immune to the fallacy when presented with a short version of the Linda problem, graduate students in the social sciences at Stanford and at Berkeley. Only 36% of them committed the error when the two critical options were compared directly. In the original experiment with eight outcomes, 85% of graduate students with the same background had made the same mistake. The difference is instructive. In the longer version, the two critical items are separated by an intervening item, insurance salesperson, and the reader is not actually forced to compare the two critical scenarios explicitly. In contrast, the comparison is compulsory when there are only two items, and a majority of the sophisticated graduate students answer in a way that conforms to the logic of probability. In hindsight, however, I believe we should have looked more carefully at how a substantial minority, 36%, of this expert group justified to themselves committing the obvious fallacy. They were surely aware of the problem and had an idea about it. As in the Muller-Lyer illusion, the fallacy remains attractive even when you know the truth. The late naturalist Stephen Jay Gould described his own struggle with the Linda problem. He knew the correct answer, of course, and yet, he wrote, a little homunculus in my head continues to jump up and down, shouting at me, but she can't just be a bank teller. Read the description. The little homunculus is, of course, Gould's System 1 speaking to him in insistent tones. The two-system terminology had not yet been introduced when he wrote. A confusion between probability and plausibility may also be involved. 
We use the word plausible for a good story that meets the requirements of associative coherence. In that sense, the outcome, Linda is a feminist bank teller, is more plausible than Linda is a bank teller, because plausible is closely related to probable, it could well be used as a substitute in the judgment, overcoming the rules of logic that people readily apply in other problems. Judge for yourself. How difficult are the following puzzles? Which alternative is more probable? Mark has hair. Mark has blonde hair. And, which alternative is more probable? Jane is a teacher. Jane is a teacher and walks to work. Plausibility is not a candidate for substitution in these questions, and the intuition of representativeness does not make things difficult by blurring the meaning of the probability question as it does in Linda's problem. It is difficult to imagine college undergraduates, let alone Stephen Jay Gould, struggling to find the correct answer to these questions. On the other hand, the confusion between probability and plausibility may play a pernicious role in the frequent use of scenarios as tools of forecasting. Consider these two scenarios, which were presented to different groups with a request to evaluate their probability. A massive flood somewhere in North America next year in which more than 1,000 people drown. An earthquake in California sometime next year causing a flood in which more than 1,000 people drown. The richer and more detailed scenario is clearly more coherent and plausible than the first, although its probability is certainly smaller. As expected, judgments violated this rule and the assessments of probability were higher for the more plausible scenario. Less is more, even in joint evaluation. Christopher Shee of the University of Chicago asked people to price sets of dinnerware offered in a clearance sale in a local store where dinnerware regularly runs between $30 and $60. There were three groups in his experiment. The display was shown to one group. She labels that joint evaluation because it allows a comparison of the two sets. The other two groups were shown and priced only one of the two sets. This is single evaluation. Joint evaluation is a within-subject experiment, and single evaluation is between subjects. Set A, 40 pieces. Dinner plates, 8, all in good condition. Soup or salad bowls, 8, all in good condition. Dessert plates, 8, all in good condition. Cups, 8, two of them broken. Saucers, 8, seven of them broken. Set B, 24 pieces. Dinner plates, 8, all in good condition. Soup or salad bowls, eight, all in good condition. Dessert plates, eight, all in good condition. Assuming that the dishes in the two sets are of equal quality, which is worth more? This question is easy. 
you can see that set A contains all the dishes of set B and seven additional intact dishes, and it must be valued more. Indeed, the participants in Xi's joint evaluation experiment were willing to pay a little more for set A than for set B, $32 versus $30. The results reversed in single evaluation, where set B was priced much higher than set A. $33 versus $23. We know why this happened. Sets, including dinnerware sets, are represented by norms and prototypes. You can sense immediately that the average value of the dishes is much lower for set A than for set B because no one wants to pay for broken dishes. If the average dominates the evaluation, it is not surprising that set B is valued more. She called the resulting pattern, less is more. By removing 16 items from set A, seven of them intact, its value improved. She's finding was replicated by the experimental economist John List in a real market for baseball cards. He auctioned sets of ten high-value cards and identical sets to which three cards of modest value were added. As in the dinnerware experiment, the larger sets were valued more than the smaller ones in joint evaluation, but less in single evaluation. From the perspective of economic theory, this is a troubling result. The economic value of a dinnerware set, or of a collection of baseball cards, is a sum-like variable. Adding a positively valued item to the set can only increase its value. The Linda problem and the dinnerware problem have exactly the same structure. Probability, like economic value, is a sum-like variable, which is why the following equation is true. Probability, Linda is a teller, equals probability, Linda is feminist teller, plus probability, Linda is non-feminist teller. This is also why, as in Xi's dinnerware study, single evaluations of the Linda problem produce a less-is-more pattern. System 1 mishandles the sum-like variable, and when the non-feminist bank tellers are removed from the set, its subjective probability increases. The critical difference between the studies is that the opportunity to compare the two options in joint evaluation eliminated the error in Xi's experiment, but did not do so in the Linda experiment. Linda was not alone. We spent many months designing experiments and found similar violations of logic in many other judgments. Participants in one of these studies were asked to rank four possible outcomes of the next Wimbledon tournament from most to least probable. Bjorn Borg was the dominant tennis player of the day when the study was conducted. These were the outcomes. A. Borg will win the match. B. Borg will lose the first set. C. Borg will lose the first set but win the match. D. Borg will win the first set, but lose the match. The critical items are B and C. B is the more inclusive event, 
and its probability must be higher than that of an event it includes. Contrary to logic, but not to representativeness, 72% assigned B a lower probability than C, another instance of less is more in a direct comparison. Here again, the scenario that was judged more probable was unquestionably more plausible, a better fit with all that was known about the best tennis player in the world. To head off the possible objection that the conjunction fallacy is due to a misinterpretation of the question, we constructed a problem that required probability judgments, but in which the events were not described in words, and the term probability did not appear at all. We told participants about a regular six-sided die with four green faces and two red faces, which would be rolled twenty times. They were shown three sequences of greens, G, and reds, R, and were asked to choose one. They would hypothetically win $25 if their chosen sequence showed up. The sequences were 1. RG RRR 2. GRGRRR 3. GRRRRR Because the die has twice as many green as red faces, the first sequence of five throws is quite unlikely, like Linda being a bank teller. The second sequence, which contains six tosses, is a better fit to what we would expect from this die, because it includes two G's. However, this sequence was constructed by adding a G to the beginning of the first sequence, so it can only be less likely than the first. This is the non-verbal equivalent to Linda being a feminist bank teller. As in the Linda study, representativeness dominated Almost two-thirds of respondents preferred to bet on sequence two rather than on sequence one. When presented with arguments for the two choices, however, a large majority found the correct argument, favoring sequence one, more convincing. The next problem was a breakthrough, because we finally found a condition in which the incidence of the conjunction fallacy was much reduced. Two groups of subjects saw slightly different variants of the same problem. Problem 1. A health survey was conducted in a sample of adult males in British Columbia, of all ages and occupations. Please give your best estimate of the following values. What percentage of the men surveyed have had one or more heart attacks? What percentage of the men surveyed are both over 55 years old and have had one or more heart attacks? Problem 2. A health survey was conducted in a sample of 100 adult males in British Columbia of all ages and occupations. Please give your best estimate of the following values. How many of the 100 participants have had one or more heart attacks? How many of the 100 participants both are over 55 years old and have had one or more heart attacks? The incidence of errors was 65% in the group that saw the first problem 
and only 25% in the group that saw the second problem. Why is the question, how many of the 100 participants, so much easier than what percentage? A likely explanation is that the reference to 100 individuals brings a spatial representation to mind. Imagine that a large number of people are instructed to sort themselves into groups in a room. Those whose names begin with the letters A to L are told to gather in the front left corner. They are then instructed to sort themselves further. The relation of inclusion is now obvious, and you can see that individuals whose names begin with C will be a subset of the crowd in the front left corner. In the medical survey question, heart attack victims end up in a corner of the room, and some of them are less than 55 years old. Not everyone will share this particular vivid imagery, but many subsequent experiments have shown that the frequency representation, as it is known, makes it easy to appreciate that one group is wholly included in the other. The solution to the puzzle appears to be that a question phrased as, how many, makes you think of individuals, but the same question phrased as, what percentage, does not. What have we learned from these studies about the workings of System 2? One conclusion, which is not new, is that System 2 is not impressively alert. The undergraduates and graduate students who participated in our studies of the conjunction fallacy certainly knew the logic of Venn diagrams, but they did not apply it reliably even when all the relevant information was laid out in front of them. System 2 must detect a clue to the relevance of the logical rule before it can apply it. The absurdity of the less-is-more pattern was obvious in Xi's dinnerware study and was easily recognized in the how-many representation, but it was not apparent to the thousands of people who have committed the conjunction fallacy in the original Linda problem and in others like it. The laziness of System 2 is probably involved. If their next vacation had depended on it, and if they had been given indefinite time and told to follow logic and not to answer until they were sure of their answer, I believe that most of our subjects would have avoided the conjunction fallacy. However, their vacation did not depend on a correct answer. They spent very little time on it and were content to answer as if they had only been asked for their opinion. The laziness of System 2 is an important fact of life, and the observation that representativeness can block the application of an obvious logical rule is also of some interest. Amos and I believed that the less-is-more pattern that almost always showed up in joint, within-subjects, evaluations was interesting and worth reporting to our colleagues. We also believed that the results strengthened our argument about the power of judgment heuristics and that they would persuade doubters, and in this we were quite wrong. Since Linda first appeared in print, almost 300 articles in which conjunction fallacy is prominently mentioned have appeared in the scholarly literature. 
the within-subject condition was the sole focus of attention. Much of the subsequent research built on what we had done, but the conjunction fallacy was also a magnet for criticisms of our approach to judgment, and a number of experimenters have used various combinations of instructions and hints to weaken or eliminate the effect. Some of these studies replicated or extended our own attempts to eliminate the conjunction fallacy. No one has challenged the validity of the results in the single evaluation condition, which we considered the critical evidence for heuristics, but the salience of this evidence has been diminished by the intense focus on the conjunction fallacy. The net effect of the Linda problem has been to increase the visibility of our work to the general public and to put a slight dent in the credibility of our approach as seen by scholars in the field. We had not anticipated that Linda would be the focus of controversy, but in hindsight, it is unsurprising. It was, of course, entirely legitimate for critics to question the robustness of the conjunction fallacy we had reported. Given the almost ideological nature of the debate, it was also natural that critics would argue that their success in weakening the fallacy discredited our whole approach, with its emphasis on errors of judgment. It was equally natural that we would find the argument utterly unconvincing, and that we would point out that the strongest evidence for our position had not been addressed. This is how intractable debates are born and develop, even in the sciences. Some years ago, I had a friendly conversation with Ralf Hertwig, a persistent critic of the Linda problem, with whom I had collaborated in a vain attempt to settle our differences. I asked him why he and others had chosen to focus exclusively on the conjunction fallacy without addressing other findings that supported our position. He smiled as he answered, It was more interesting, adding that the Linda problem had attracted so much attention that we had no reason to complain. Speaking of less is more. They constructed a very complicated scenario and insisted on calling it highly probable. It is not. It is only a plausible story. They added a cheap gift to the expensive product and made the whole deal less attractive. Less is more in this case. He looked at the case in isolation. Single evaluation. System 1 dominated his response. If he had considered a comparison, System 2 would have had a chance to get it right. In most situations, a direct comparison makes people more careful and more logical, but not always. Sometimes intuition beats logic even when the correct answer stares you in the face. Chapter 16 Causes Trump Statistics Consider the following scenario and note your intuitive answer to the question. A cab was involved in a hit-and-run accident at night. Two cab companies, the green and the blue, operate in the city. You are given the following data. 
85% of the cabs in the city are green and 15% are blue. A witness identified the cab as blue. The court tested the reliability of the witness under the circumstances that existed on the night of the accident and concluded that the witness correctly identified each one of the two colors 80% of the time and failed 20% of the time. What is the probability that the cab involved in the accident was blue rather than green? This is a standard problem of Bayesian inference. There are two items of information, a base rate and the imperfectly reliable testimony of a witness. In the absence of a witness, the probability of the guilty cab being blue is 15%, which is the base rate of that outcome. If the two cab companies had been equally large, the base rate would have been uninformative and you would have considered only the reliability of the witness, concluding that the probability is 80%. The two sources of information can be combined by Bayes' rule. The correct answer is 41%. However, you can probably guess what people do when faced with this problem. They ignore the base rate and go with a witness. The most common answer is 80%. Causal Stereotypes Now consider a variation of the same story in which only the presentation of the base rate has been altered. You are given the following data. The two companies operate the same number of cabs, but green cabs are involved in 85% of accidents. The information about the witness is as in the previous version. The two versions of the problem are mathematically indistinguishable, but they are psychologically quite different. People who read the first version do not know how to use the base rate and often ignore it. In contrast, people who see the second version give considerable weight to the base rate, and their average judgment is not too far from the Bayesian solution. Why? In the first version, the base rate of blue cabs is a statistical fact about the cabs in the city. A mind that is hungry for causal stories finds nothing to chew on. How does the number of green and blue cabs in the city cause this cab driver to hit and run? In the second version, in contrast, the drivers of green cabs cause more than five times as many accidents as the blue cabs do. The conclusion is immediate. The green drivers must be a collection of reckless madmen. You have now formed a stereotype of green recklessness, which you apply to unknown individual drivers in the company. The stereotype is easily fitted into a causal story, because recklessness is a causally relevant fact about individual cab drivers. In this version, there are two causal stories that need to be combined or reconciled. The first is the hidden run which naturally evokes the idea that a reckless green driver was responsible. The second is the witness's testimony, which strongly suggests the cab was blue. The inferences from the two stories about the color of the car are contradictory and approximately cancel each other. The chances for the two colors are about equal. 
The Bayesian estimate is 41%, reflecting the fact that the base rate of green cabs is a little more extreme than the reliability of the witness who reported a blue cab. The cab example illustrates two types of base rates. Statistical base rates are facts about a population to which a case belongs, but they are not relevant to the individual case. Causal base rates change your view of how the individual case came to be. The two types of base rate information are treated differently. Statistical base rates are generally underweighted and sometimes neglected altogether when specific information about the case at hand is available. Causal base rates are treated as information about the individual case and are easily combined with other case-specific information. The causal version of the cab problem had the form of a stereotype. Green drivers are dangerous. Stereotypes are statements about the group that are at least tentatively accepted as facts about every member. Here are two examples. Most of the graduates of this inner-city school go to college. Interest in cycling is widespread in France. These statements are readily interpreted as setting up a propensity in individual members of the group, and they fit in a causal story. Many graduates of this particular inner-city school are eager and able to go to college, presumably because of some beneficial features of life in that school. There are forces in French culture and social life that cause many Frenchmen to take an interest in cycling. You will be reminded of these facts when you think about the likelihood that a particular graduate of the school will attend college or when you wonder whether to bring up the Tour de France in a conversation with a Frenchman you just met. Stereotyping is a bad word in our culture, but in my usage, it is neutral. One of the basic characteristics of System 1 is that it represents categories as norms and prototypical exemplars. This is how we think of horses, refrigerators, and New York police officers, we hold in memory a representation of one or more normal members of each of these categories. When the categories are social, these representations are called stereotypes. Some stereotypes are perniciously wrong, and hostile stereotyping can have dreadful consequences, but the psychological facts cannot be avoided. Stereotypes, both correct and false, are how we think of categories. You may note the irony. In the context of the cab problem, the neglect of base rate information is a cognitive flaw, a failure of Bayesian reasoning, and the reliance on causal base rates is desirable. Stereotyping the green drivers improves the accuracy of judgment. In other contexts, however, such as hiring or profiling, there is a strong social norm against stereotyping, which is also embedded in the law. This is as it should be. In sensitive social contexts, we do not want to draw possibly erroneous conclusions about the individual from the statistics of the group.
We consider it morally desirable for base rates to be treated as statistical facts about the group rather than as presumptive facts about individuals. In other words, we reject causal base rates. The social norm against stereotyping, including the opposition to profiling, has been highly beneficial in creating a more civilized and more equal society. It is useful to remember, however, that neglecting valid stereotypes inevitably results in suboptimal judgments. Resistance to stereotyping is a laudable moral position, but the simplistic idea that the resistance is costless is wrong. The costs are worth paying to achieve a better society, but denying that the costs exist while satisfying to the soul and politically correct is not scientifically defensible. Reliance on the affect heuristic is common in politically charged arguments. The positions we favor have no cost, and those we oppose have no benefits. We should be able to do better. Causal Situations Amos and I constructed the variance of the cab problem, but we did not invent the powerful notion of causal base rates. We borrowed it from the psychologist Aichek Ashin. In his experiment, Ashin showed his participants brief vignettes describing some students who had taken an exam at Yale and asked the participants to judge the probability that each student had passed the test. The manipulation of causal base rates was straightforward. Ashin told one group that the students they saw had been drawn from a class in which 75% passed the exam, and told another group that the same students had been in a class in which only 25% passed. This is a powerful manipulation because the base rate of passing suggests the immediate inference that the test that only 25% passed must have been brutally difficult. The difficulty of a test, of course, is one of the causal factors that determine every student's outcome. As expected, Ashen's students were highly sensitive to the causal base rates, and every student was judged more likely to pass in the high-success condition than in the high-failure rate. Ashin used an ingenious method to suggest a non-causal base rate. He told his subjects that the students they saw had been drawn from a sample which itself was constructed by selecting students who had passed or failed the exam. For example, the information for the high-failure group read as follows. The investigator was mainly interested in the causes of failure and constructed a sample in which 75% had failed the examination. Note the difference. This base rate is a purely statistical fact about the ensemble from which cases have been drawn. It has no bearing on the question asked, which is whether the individual student passed or failed the test. As expected, the explicitly stated base rates had some effects on judgment, but they had much less impact than the statistically equivalent causal base rates. System 1 can deal with stories in which the elements are causally linked, 
but it is weak in statistical reasoning. For a Bayesian thinker, of course, the versions are equivalent. It is tempting to conclude that we have reached a satisfactory conclusion. Causal base rates are used. Merely statistical facts are more or less neglected. The next study, one of my all-time favorites, shows that the situation is rather more complex. Can psychology be taught? The reckless cab drivers and the impossibly difficult exam illustrate two inferences that people can draw from causal base rates: a stereotypical trait that is attributed to an individual. And a significant feature of the situation that affects the individual's outcome. The participants in the experiments made the correct inferences, and their judgments improved. Unfortunately, things do not always work out so well. The classic experiment I describe next shows that people will not draw from base rate information an inference that conflicts with other beliefs. It also supports the uncomfortable conclusion that teaching psychology is mostly a waste of time. The experiment was conducted a long time ago by the social psychologist Richard Nisbet and his student Eugene Borgida at the University of Michigan. They told students about the renowned helping experiment that had been conducted a few years earlier at New York University. Participants in that experiment were led to individual booths and invited to speak over the intercom about their personal lives and problems. They were to talk in turn for about two minutes. Only one microphone was active at any one time. There were six participants in each group, one of whom was a stooge. The stooge spoke first, following a script prepared by the experimenters. He described his problems adjusting to New York, and admitted with obvious embarrassment that he was prone to seizures, especially when stressed. All the participants then had a turn. When the microphone was again turned over to the stooge, he became agitated and incoherent. Said he felt a seizure coming on, and asked for someone to help him. The last words heard from him were, "Could somebody?" Help! Uh, 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 I, I'm gonna die. Uh, 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 I'm gonna die. I, uh, I seizure. Uh, uh. At this point, the microphone of the next participant automatically became active, and nothing more was heard from the possibly dying individual. What do you think the participants in the experiment did? So far as the participants knew, one of them was having a seizure and had asked for help. However, there were several other people who could possibly respond, so perhaps one could stay safely in one's booth. These were the results: only four of the fifteen participants responded immediately to the appeal for help. Six never got out of their booth, and five others came out only well after the. Seizure victim apparently choked. The experiment shows that individuals feel relieved of responsibility when they know that others have heard the same request for help. Did the results surprise you? Very probably. 
Most of us think of ourselves as decent people who would rush to help in such a situation, and we expect other decent people to do the same. The point of the experiment, of course, was to show that this expectation is wrong. Even normal, decent people do not rush to help when they expect others to take on the unpleasantness of dealing with a seizure. And that means you, too. Are you willing to endorse the following statement? When I read the procedure of the helping experiment, I thought I would come to the stranger's help immediately, as I probably would if I found myself alone with a seizure victim. I was probably wrong. If I find myself in a situation in which other people have an opportunity to help, I might not step forward. The presence of others would reduce my sense of personal responsibility more than I initially thought. This is what a teacher of psychology would hope you would learn. Would you have made the same inferences by yourself? The psychology professor who describes the helping experiment wants the students to view the low base rate as causal, just as in the case of the fictitious Yale exam. He wants them to infer, in both cases, that a surprisingly high rate of failure implies a very difficult test. The lesson students are meant to take away is that some potent feature of the situation, such as the diffusion of responsibility, induces normal and decent people, such as them, to behave in a surprisingly unhelpful way. Changing one's mind about human nature is hard work, and changing one's mind for the worse about oneself is even harder. Nisbet and Borgida suspected that students would resist the work and the unpleasantness. Of course, the students would be able and willing to recite the details of the helping experiment on a test, and would even repeat the official interpretation in terms of diffusion of responsibility. But did their beliefs about human nature really change? To find out, Nisbet and Borgida showed them videos of brief interviews allegedly conducted with two people who had participated in the New York study. The interviews were short and bland. The interviewees appeared to be nice, normal, decent people. They described their hobbies, their spare time activities, and their plans for the future, which were entirely conventional. After watching the video of an interview, the students guessed how quickly that particular person had come to the aid of the stricken stranger. To apply Bayesian reasoning to the task the students were assigned, you should first ask yourself what would you have guessed about the two individuals if you had not seen their interviews. This question is answered by consulting the base rate. We have been told that only four of the fifteen participants in the experiment rushed to help after the first request. The probability that an unidentified participant had been immediately helpful is therefore 27%. Thus your prior belief about any unspecified participant should be that he did not rush to help. Next, Bayesian logic requires you to adjust your judgment in light of any relevant information about the individual. However, the videos were carefully designed to be uninformative. 
they provided no reason to suspect that the individuals would be either more or less helpful than a randomly chosen student. In the absence of useful new information, the Bayesian solution is to stay with the base rates. Nisbet and Borgida asked two groups of students to watch the videos and predict the behavior of the two individuals. The students in the first group were told only about the procedure of the helping experiment, not about its results. Their predictions reflected their views of human nature and their understanding of the situation. As you might expect, they predicted that both individuals would immediately rush to the victim's aid. The second group of students knew both the procedure of the experiment and its results. The comparison of the predictions of the two groups provides an answer to a significant question. Did students learn from the results of the helping experiment anything that significantly changed their way of thinking? The answer is straightforward. They learned nothing at all. Their predictions about the two individuals were indistinguishable from the predictions made by students who had not been exposed to the statistical results of the experiment. They knew the base rate in the group from which the individuals had been drawn, but they remained convinced that the people they saw on the video had been quick to help the stricken stranger. For teachers of psychology, the implications of this study are disheartening. When we teach our students about the behavior of people in the helping experiment, we expect them to learn something they had not known before. We wish to change how they think about people's behavior in a particular situation. This goal was not accomplished in the Nisbet-Borgida study, and there is no reason to believe that the results would have been different if they had chosen another surprising psychological experiment. Indeed, Nisbet and Borgida reported similar findings in teaching another study in which mild social pressure caused people to accept much more painful electric shocks than most of us and them would have expected. Students who do not develop a new appreciation for the power of social setting have learned nothing of value from the experiment. The predictions they make about random strangers or about their own behavior indicate that they have not changed their view of how they would have behaved. In the words of Nisbet and Borgida, students quietly exempt themselves and their friends and acquaintances from the conclusions of experiments that surprise them. Teachers of psychology should not despair, however, because Nisbet and Borgida report a way to make their students appreciate the point of the helping experiment. They took a new group of students and taught them the procedure of the experiment, but did not tell them the group results. They showed the two videos and simply told their students that the two individuals they had just seen had not helped the stranger, then asked them to guess the global results. The outcome was dramatic. The students' guesses were extremely accurate. To teach students any psychology they did not know before, you must surprise them. But which surprise will do? 
Nisbet and Borgida found that when they presented their students with a surprising statistical fact, the students managed to learn nothing at all. But when the students were surprised by individual cases, two nice people who had not helped, they immediately made the generalization and inferred that helping is more difficult than they had thought. Nisbet and Borgida summarized the results in a memorable sentence. Subjects' unwillingness to deduce the particular from the general was matched only by their willingness to infer the general from the particular. This is a profoundly important conclusion. People who are taught surprising statistical facts about human behavior may be impressed to the point of telling their friends about what they have heard, but this does not mean that their understanding of the world has really changed. The test of learning psychology is whether your understanding of situations you encounter has changed, not whether you have learned a new fact. There is a deep gap between our thinking about statistics and our thinking about individual cases. Statistical results with a causal interpretation have a stronger effect on our thinking than non-causal information. But even compelling causal statistics will not change long-held beliefs or beliefs rooted in personal experience. On the other hand, surprising individual cases have a powerful impact and are a more effective tool for teaching psychology because the incongruity must be resolved and embedded in a causal story. That is why this book contains questions that are addressed personally to the reader. You are more likely to learn something by finding surprises in your own behavior than by hearing surprising facts about people in general. Speaking of Causes and Statistics We can't assume that they will really learn anything from mere statistics. Let's show them one or two representative individual cases to influence their system one. No need to worry about this statistical information being ignored. On the contrary, it will immediately be used to feed a stereotype. 